It's great to be with you and uh, thinking about the theme called to be faithful. Uh, Bob, I want to thank you for the invitation to be here and say when I think of that theme, I really do think of you. Uh, you're, a, you're a man who's been a faithful friend to me over the years. Um, you're a faithful husband and father. I know that to be true of you. And you're a faithful, you're a faithful disciple who has just um, walked with the Lord through all kinds of circumstances and just from what I know, difficulties at various times over the years. But you've persevered and endured in the grace of God. And uh, every two years, uh, you put these things on for us that we can all come and benefit and encounter God because of, uh, of your faithfulness. So I really wanted to start by just saying thank you. And uh, I, I admire you. I respect you. And um, I, I believe that you, you uh, by God's grace, walk out the theme of the week. Uh, so thanks for that. I'm honored to be a part of the conference. I'm honored to speak on the theme, uh, faithful to receive. But I do have a question about why you assigned that to me, faithful to receive. I don't know if you've looked through the other topics, but I was kind of wondering what went through Bob's head when he's assigning people topics and he assigns me faithful to receive. And so there's like people, somebody's speaking on faithful to serve. I'm imagining you're thinking, who's godly and uh, mature and selfless and sacrificial, faithful to serve? Yeah, let's give that guy that session. And maybe someone who fears the Lord and reverences God's word and has uh, remarkable preaching gifts, that'd be faithful to proclaim. Someone who is passionate about the holiness of God, uh, someone who is diligent in pursuing Christ and their sanctification, faithful to grow. And then I'm just imagining you're sitting there thinking, well, like, who does nothing? Who like, shows up empty-handed with nothing to contribute? Who always comes just to get, never makes any contribution whatsoever? That guy's faithful to receive. And uh, so I'm imagining that's how I got the assignment. He has nothing to contribute, but man, he sure can receive. So think about the open hand, I think about him. So I, I want to thank you for that. And... Uh, so it's a joy to be the guy who receives with nothing to contribute. Well, let's pray, and uh, then we will uh, dig into our topic. Father, we do thank you that you are a giving God, that the God of all grace delights to give to his children, and so we do ask now that we could receive from you, that you would speak to us from your word that you would pour your spirit out upon us to open our ears, to sensitize our minds, to soften our hearts, that we could receive from you, Lord. We pray that you would, uh, we pray that you would display the Lord Jesus Christ in glory before us now, and that we would receive a fresh, a, a fresh awareness of who you are, Lord. We come in here with all kinds of circumstances. And I pray that you would cut through the clutter of our lives now and you would reveal to us yourself and that we would be those who receive and feed on your word. Lord, have your way in our midst now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4, if you would please. John chapter 4. Uh, Bob mentioned that I'm from Texas, that I pastor in Texas, but... What he didn't mention was that I spent a long time in Southern California, almost two decades uh, in Pasadena and then in San Diego. So it's wonderful to be back in uh, Southern California with you, a place that's dear to me, dear to my heart. And 
As we flew in yesterday to Southern California, I just was remembering um, my early years in Southern California in the late 80s. I was a seminary student, moved here to go to seminary. And uh, as a seminary student, we were poor. I was going to school full-time and doing a, uh, an unpaid internship. I was faithful to give back then before I was faithful to receive. And uh, so I was doing an unpaid internship, was poor. My wife worked, and uh, I went to school full-time. And I had this friend, and we had graduated college at the same time, only he took a different tack. Uh, he went into business. He had a very lucrative job and made a lot of money as a young guy. And uh, we would, at time to time, meet up and go eat. And uh, I can remember going to eat with him, and we always had a similar, uh, sort of a similar little sparring when the, when the check was brought to us. Perhaps you've done this, I'm sure you have, uh, where we would kind of argue over who's going to pay for it. And uh, so he would always grab it and try to pay, and he would just sort of wrestle me with certain arguments like, well, I make money and have a real job, and you sit around and read theology, so you have no money. Let me buy your meal. And so he would buy it. The next time we'd get together, he'd argue again, and when he would buy my meal, and I'd argue, come on, no, you bought last time, let me buy. No, 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 I'm going to pick it up. I remember one time he used the line on me, I tried to grab the check, and he said, no, I'm buying this. Don't you dare steal my blessing. Uh, it's my blessing to give, which is, uh, I said, oh, well, I don't want to steal from a guy. Go ahead. And <laughs> who, who am I to steal? So he, go on and on. So I remember one time we're, we're eating after all of these series of meals that he's bought. And uh, so check comes. I said, okay, it is my turn to buy this time. And he looked at me and he said, no, I'm going to buy. And he said, Craig, you can't even be a Christian if you can't receive a gift. I thought, whoa. <laughs> Just wanted to buy a burrito, bro. <laughs> and you're questioning the authenticity of my regeneration here. So, <laughs> But as I thought, that had stuck with me over the years, and I thought what he said was profound beyond his intention because he articulated the fundamental identity of a Christian. He pointed out the very DNA of a believer, and it is this. A Christian at the base level is one who receives. One who receives. A Christian is one who has received eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Christianity is a religion that is uniquely characterized by this notion that its adherents are primarily receivers from their God and not doers for their God. That that is the core of our faith, that we come to faith through reception of a gift and not by performance of a deed or deeds. And, and while I'm sure we realize the fact that our conversion is based on receiving, I believe it's essential that we also realize that our ongoing growth as a believer is dependent on maintaining a posture of receiving. I mean, I wonder how many of us really understand and really think about what we've received from God. I wonder how much this idea actually shapes us. In an environment like this, where we are gathered to learn about how we can serve God's people, 
as those who have the privilege to serve in corporate worship, as we are gathered to learn about how we can serve God's people and serve the Lord in worship, I believe it's important that we begin with focusing on our role as receivers before we move on to talk about our opportunities as doers. So before we fill our notebooks with a lot of fresh ideas from our seminars, from our main sessions, from the conversations that we have over meals, let's begin by considering our calling to receive. And let's see how this informs our calling to worship. What I'd like to do is look at a narrative passage from the ministry of Jesus, John 4. It's a familiar passage. And I would like to track this passage, walk through this package, this uh, passage where Jesus, uh, our Savior, is in an alarming way reaching out to this needy woman with grace. He is startling her with the Father's grace. He is pursuing her with the Father's heart. She's caught completely off guard by the whole encounter. And I want to walk through this passage and see how it illustrates our receiving from God. And then what I would like to do is take a couple of big ideas that I believe are present in the passage and apply them to our service in corporate worship. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a section and then talk briefly about it. And then when we get to verses 16 through 26, we'll linger there and develop out that section a little bit more where Jesus actually dialogues with this woman about the subject of worship. So we'll camp there for a little bit. But beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's a period in Jesus' ministry where opposition is rising in Judea, and so he chooses to leave and to go back uh, to Galilee. And the passage tells us that in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, there were other ways to get back to Galilee, but he took a path, and actually it speaks as, a, as an imperative that he had to pass through Samaria. There were other ways to go around Samaria. As a matter of fact, the strictest Jew would circumvent Samaria, would go around because the strictest Jew, a Pharisee, for instance, would not want to pass through Samaria and become unclean. Samaria was an unclean area, and so to do so would render oneself unclean. But Jesus, you see, is on a rescue mission. He has to pass through Samaria because he is on a mission sent from his father, and God's plan includes pursuing a woman to become a worshiper of him, and in fact, to pursue an entire town to become worshipers of the heavenly Father. And so he is compelled to pass through because of what is about to transpire in the meeting of this woman and the conversation that ensues. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus begins a conversation. He's sitting at this well, Jacob's well. It's noon. It's the very middle of the day. And A woman comes up to draw water, and he takes the initiative and speaks to her. He says to her, give me a drink. And her response is one of astonishment. She is startled. She says, verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John, parenthetically, tells us, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews looked down upon the Samaritans. The Jews despised the Samaritans because the Samaritans were kind of a, a, a half-breed, is they, the, the way they would have been viewed. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile because their, their forefathers, their Jewish forefathers, had intermarried historically with Gentiles. And so now they were mixed, and the Jews looked upon them as Gentiles. They looked upon them as unclean, and they opposed them. They were distinguished in their religion as well. You see, the Samaritans had a separate temple on Mount Gerizim, not on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They had their own temple for worship. And the Samaritans, well, they had a different Bible. The Samaritans only read the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. So they, they were different than the Jews and yet similar. They were worshipers of Yahweh, but they were different. They were not the same, and the Jews looked down upon them. And so she is saying, how is it that you, a Jew, are interacting with me? I'm a Samaritan. More than that, how is it that you are interacting with me, a woman of Samaria, she says, for no polite religious Jewish man would have had a one-on-one conversation with a woman as Jesus is doing. And so she is surprised by all of this. And and there's something else that she's surprised by. Later on, she says that he asked for a drink, and, and she says, well, you have nothing to draw water with. Jesus has no container, and he is actually asking if he can drink from her container, which would have been unthinkable that he would render himself unclean not only by being in Samaria, but by drinking after a Samaritan woman. And so there is social custom, there is religious propriety, and Jesus is cutting through all of it because he is on a mission to reach a woman. And so all of the human tradition and the human standards, he's going to bypass it out of mercy and out of love for her. And as we're about to find out, she is a needy, desperate outcast of a woman. 
and his mission will not be thwarted by human tradition. He's come to give himself to her as a Savior. In fact, he refers to himself as a gift. Look back at verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus has come to give to those who will receive. He is a gift of God. And he's saying, if you only knew who you were speaking with, if you only knew, you would have asked, and I would have given you living water. Now, she misunderstands. She thinks he's literally talking about water. Living water is moving water. It's a stream as opposed to stagnant well water. And so she thinks he's talking about, are you going to give me some kind of running water? That must be down below the well somehow. She says, look, you don't even have anything to draw with. Where is this living water? How can I find this living water? Uh, By the way, Jacob, our forefather, he drank this stagnant well water. It was good enough for him. Are you, she asked, are you greater than Jacob? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. He's the God of Jacob in the flesh. So he doesn't answer the question, but the correct answer is yes. I'm greater than Jacob. So she just doesn't understand what is going on. But what he's saying to her is, I'm speaking of a different kind of water, that if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. And she still misunderstands. For verse 15, she says, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's thinking, if you give me this water, I won't have to come here every day in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day to draw water. But he's talking about something else. He's saying that he's the gift of God who brings what? Well, he brings eternal life. The water that I will give, the gift gives to those who receive, the the water that I will give, verse 14, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's come to bring the water of salvation to this woman, to quench her thirst, her deepest thirst, her spiritual thirst. He's come to a woman who is dry, a woman who is parched, a woman who is empty, and he's come to bring her living water, eternal life, salvation through himself. He is the gift. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. After the confusion over the water incident, the living water incident, he then, out of love, penetrates her heart, and he reveals that he knows that she is a woman who has had five husbands and is currently cohabitating with a man outside of marriage. He has uncovered her guilt. He has uncovered her shame. He has exposed her heart. She's a broken woman. We we can know just by this brief description that her life has been a series of relationships. Her life has been one collapsed relationship after another. And given her lifestyle, she would have been an outcast in this culture. It, It is perhaps why she's drawing water in the middle of the day at noon People drew water in the morning, and people drew water in the evening at the cool of day, but she's out there by herself drawing water, perhaps to avoid the, the derisive remarks of those who look down upon her, the condescending glares and stares that she would receive for the kind of person she was, yet that's the exact person that Jesus runs to, the exact person that he is looking for, and she is stunned by his revelation. How could he know this about her? And she says, sir, I I perceive you are a prophet. You are not just a stranger at a well. You're someone who knows things that nobody could know. How do you know that? With her character uncovered and with her life laid bare, she immediately shifts the subject to worship. She shifts from her life and the spotlight on her soul, she shifts to the theme of worship. And and she begins to talk about where should God's people worship. She says, our fathers said that we should worship on this mountain. Now, Jacob's well is right below the mountain, so she may have even pointed to Mount Gerizim. Our fathers said that we should worship on this mountain. And yet you, your people, the Jews, say that that Jerusalem is the place to worship. You see, her argument and the argument of the Samaritans was that we worship here because this is where our forefathers worshiped. Abraham... Uh, and Jacob had both built altars in this region. So the patriarchs uh, had worshipped there. And and, and what's more, they didn't believe, the Samaritans didn't believe, but only in the first five books of the Bible. So they didn't acknowledge the part of the Scripture where David is called by God to build the temple and his son Solomon completes it. They didn't identify that as Holy Scripture. And so they identified the work of the forefathers and they believed that God was to be worshipped on this temple and they had, on this mount, and they had built a temple for it. So she moves immediately from her immorality to worship wars. She takes the light off herself and she says, so what do you say? Our fathers, verse 20, worshiped here, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Now, what is going on here? Is she, is she avoiding confrontation? I mean, is this like the four-year-old kid at bedtime who just remembered they need a drink of water? Just a diversion tactic. 
let's just go, oh yeah, here's something. Have you thought about this? A diversion tactic off the subject is that's what's going on here. She's trying to take the prophet and distract him so that he doesn't reveal any more about her. I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I think she's sincere in her question. I think she is sincerely interested. I believe she's sincerely interested because I've read the rest of the story as you have. What's the trajectory of this conversation? She's about to go get saved and lead her whole city to Jesus. So she is not distracting off of herself. She is inquiring sincerely of the Savior because this whole conversation is barreling towards a revival in her city. And so she is asking a very sincere question about worship. See, she is asking a prophet of God, where do people encounter God? You know God because you know me, and you could not know me if you didn't know God. If God wasn't telling you this stuff, you would never know. So you are, you are the real deal. And so as a prophet, can you tell me where do people encounter God? So she's asking, which is the right temple? The temple represented the place that worshipers encountered God, but more specifically, where sin was atoned for. It was in the temple that sacrifices were offered so that the people of God would be forgiven. A natural place for the mind of a convicted sinner to go is to atonement. She's been exposed, and now she's asking about where do you encounter God, and, and ultimately, where are sins atoned for? See, she has encountered a prophet, and now she needs a priest. She's encountered a prophet, and now she is aware of her need afresh of atonement. Her exposure causes her to ask about the appropriate place to worship God. Is it Mount Gerizim, or is it… Jerusalem. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I love Jesus' words. She's asking about the worship of the fathers. Our fathers worshiped here. Jesus is pointing to the worship of the Father. The Father. In neither one of these places will we worship the Father. The answer is not found in Mount Gerizim worship because they don't fully know God. That's what he says, you worship what you don't know. They don't have a full revelation of God that would lead them to expect the Messiah, Jesus. They, they have a limited revelation of God because they only look to the first five books of the Old Testament and not what follows. And yet, Jerusalem worship isn't the place for worship as well because they aren't really honoring God. They are already resisting and rejecting His Son. That's already taking place in the Gospel of John. So that, that's His answer. He says, the hour is coming, verse 21, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So He tells that salvation is coming from the Jews. The hour, verse 21, is coming. When Jesus talks about the hour in the Gospel of John, it is usually a reference to His death and his resurrection to follow. It's sometimes spoken of as his very coming, the hour in which God acts in the history of salvation to bring salvation through Jesus. 
And so he is saying the hour has come when it's not this temple or that temple. As a matter of fact, it's not temple at all. It's it's the hour of Jesus coming. It's the hour that points to his death and resurrection where all things are changing with regard to worship. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. He is now here. Jesus is now here. The hour has arrived when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Through Christ, the hour is about Jesus. Through Christ, God will now be worshiped everywhere in spirit and in truth. In fact, the Father is seeking. The Father is pursuing. The Father is looking for people to worship in this way. That's why the whole conversation is taking place. This whole conversation, this whole event is a prime example. It's evidence that God the Father is pursuing worshipers and he's pursuing this woman as a worshiper right now. Jesus had to pass through Samaria because the Father was seeking her and her town. He's seeking her. He reveals her need. He reveals himself as the gift of God who gives eternal life. He reveals himself as the one who is the living water. He's revealing himself. He came to reveal the Father who is not looking for worship in a temple. A chapter earlier, two chapters earlier rather, in chapter 2, Jesus has already told the Jews that he is the new temple. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. This he spoke of his body, John records. That he's already said that he's the new temple. It's not Jerusalem, it's not Gerizim, it's Jesus the new temple. It's not that you need a sacrifice at the temple. John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 29 of John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sacrifice is present. The new temple is present. It's not here or there. It's through Jesus that we worship. The Father is seeking people who will worship in the new temple, through the new temple, by way of the new sacrifice, once and for all, Jesus Christ, and will respond in spirit and in truth. He's not seeking temple worshipers. He's seeking spirit and truth worshipers. And he's seeking worship from this pitiable woman who does not worship in truth. She does not worship in truth, but now truth incarnate stands in front of her. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is on her doorstep. Truth is at the well. Truth is the gift of God representing the Father who is pursuing her. It's a wonderful narrative of God going after sinners. He is the truth she must worship. It's not about location, but it's about truth, and it's about worship from the Spirit, worship that is internal, not worship. She's concerned about location. That's an external concern. Jesus is concerned internally that worship emanate from the core of our being, that worship emanate from our heart. Now, It's worship by the Holy Spirit as well, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I don't think the Holy Spirit is in view here. I think the Spirit, the internal, is in view. So we worship in truth and in spirit. See, she has had her world now turned upside down. 
because she has been exposed and then she has asked, where can I go to seek God? Where do people go to seek God? Over here? Over there? And he says, neither. It is the Father who's seeking. You don't seek here. You don't seek there. It is God the Father who is seeking those who will worship in Christ, in spirit, and in truth. She responds by saying, well, when the Messiah comes, all I know is that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will sort all this out, and he will explain all things. And then here's the reveal. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Boom. (laughs) Well, I don't know what you're saying as a prophet, but one day the Messiah is coming, and it'll all make sense. Oh, I'm here. And it's making sense. And the Father's pursuing you right now. Not to go to a location, but to receive Christ from the Father who is seeking you. Receive I who speak to you am he. The results are breathtaking. She goes back to town and she tells everyone, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did, which either they had a very long conversation or that was a little bit of an exaggeration, but you know, maybe there's some things unrecorded here. From her perspective, everything about me he knows. And the people, this entire city comes out to meet the Lord and Jesus stays with them two more days. It's a beautiful account of Jesus reaching an outsider and then Jesus reaching an entire city of outsiders. And I find it interesting that in the midst of this harvest narrative, because that's what it is, it's primarily a, passion, primarily a passage that shows the expansion of Jesus' ministry to reach those outside of Jerusalem. It's primarily about his mission. It's primarily about harvest looking to the harvest field. But in the middle of all this harvest narrative, there is this most interesting interchange concerning worship. Right in the middle of it is this conversation about worship. And in it, he redirects her perspective. And he redirects our perspective as well. Because Jesus gives us a baseline here for understanding worship. Jesus gives us a fundamental understanding of worship. And this is, this is what it is, that worship results from something God does, not something we do. She misunderstood. He turns it upside down. He turns the tables. He does a 180. He said, it's not about you seeking God. It's about God seeking you. Worship originates with the Father seeking, not with our seeking. I mean, look at verse 23 again. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. There's a lot of energy spent, and it's worthwhile, trying to understand what spirit and truth is. If you pick up a commentary, there'll be lots of conversations about what is spirit and truth. And that is a worthy endeavor. If we are to be worshiping the Lord, and he says that God is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, then it behooves us to understand something about spirit and truth. I made some very basic comments about it today. But there is a truth that underlines, uh, that, that is foundational to spirit and truth worship that's in this passage. See, spirit and truth worships like Maybe that's the ground floor, but there's a foundation under the ground floor. He, he says something that's more fundamental than God, is, than God receives, God's goal is to receive 
spirit and truth worship. What he says that's most foundational is that the Father is seeking worshipers. That's what's most foundational to the whole narrative. The whole narrative is about Jesus going out and finding someone and then someones. The whole narrative is foundationally about the Father seeking worshipers. And here's the big worship idea out of this section that, 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 that hits me, and I trust will land on you as well. It's that true worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us, not our pursuit of Him. That's foundational. True worship, because He's looking for uh, worshiper in spirit and in truth, true worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us, not our pursuit of Him. Said another way, worship begins with our receiving, not our giving. We are first and foremost recipients, not contributors. We are recipients. And as we understand more deeply our need for God as she came to see, and what God has done through, for us through the gospel, what God has done for us through the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. As we grow deeper in our understanding of what He has done for us, not only what He objectively did for us, but how He subjectively applied it to us, His saving work applied to us, as we grow in our understanding of those two things, then we are prepared to respond with worship in spirit and truth. But it starts there. It starts with our identity as receivers, those who have received the grace of God, those who have received the work of Jesus, those who have been acted upon so that we would see and believe in the work of Jesus. Receivers. True worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us and not our pursuit of Him. This has profound implications for us as worshipers. Profound implications. As leaders, and by leaders I mean pastors, uh, worship, those who lead song, lead in song, worship leaders, those who lead in any way, have, contribute to the leading of God's people in worship by participating on a worship team or anything like this. But for leaders, it is vital that we are far more aware of the Father's loving provision for us in Jesus and His loving pursuit of us through the Spirit than we are our pursuit of Him. We need to be more aware of His pursuit of us than our pursuit of Him. That needs to be our starting place, and that will, that will shape our approach to corporate worship. I know the whole passage isn't about corporate worship, but she introduces the topic, and Jesus redirects her on it. So it is in the text. She's talking about locations for worship. And he's talking about spirit and truth worship, which is the result of those who have been sought by the Father. So I would like to make two, two practical applications today about how this passage affects our gathered worship. But I need my water before I do that because I'm as parched as that lady right now. I do have living water, but I don't have uh, the stagnant water. Okay. Here is, as you lead and think about this truth, that true worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of us and not our pursuit of Him, Here, here's two ideas for you that I think are, that I think are reflective uh, from this text. Number one, concentrate on receiving and you'll magnify grace. Concentrate on receiving and you will magnify grace. 
If you want your worship gathering, your Sunday service, your small group worship time in a living room, wherever it is, your youth worship, your children's worship, your Sunday morning gathered worship, if you want your gathering to give off an aroma of grace, focus on receiving from God. Have you noticed when you enter into someone's home that there's usually an aroma in the home? I'm not talking about like, oh, yeah, I can tell they, they, were, they cooked fish last night, or uh, there's a two-year-old that, that needs a diaper change. I'm not talking about that kind of aroma, which is pungent and, uh, you know, hits you in the face when you come in. I'm just talking about the regular aroma of a home. Everyone's home has some kind of aroma, oftentimes undetected by them, or they do something about it, but oftentimes it's, it's unknown to them, but you notice when you come in. And our gatherings, our house has an aroma as well. When we elevate the person and the work of Christ, when we celebrate what He has done for us and how He has applied His work to us, when we center on what we have received from Him more than what we are bringing to Him, the aroma will be grace because the spotlight will be upon Him and His work and not us and our work. The Samaritan woman cannot contain her astonishment at what she has received from Jesus. She runs and tells what Jesus did. Note, she is celebrating what he did, not how she responded. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. Now, I know this is a testimony. I know she's evangelizing, but this is worship. This is the language of worship. It is a declaration of what Christ has done. And what captures her heart, what animates her speech, what, 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 uh, What has altered her reality, what astonishes her most, is not that she responded to Jesus. It's that Jesus came seeking her on behalf of the Father. And she runs and tells everyone. This is true for us as well. When we give attention to what we have received, here will be the result. Overjoyed. Overjoyed. Humbled. We will be humbled when we think about what we have received because we have nothing to be puffed up about. If it's not about my contribution, if true worship emerges from the Father's pursuit of me and Christ by the power of the Spirit, then what do I have to be proud of in me? This is a humbling truth. It causes us to be grateful. This is a grateful lady. She's going out and telling everyone, can you believe the outcast, the one who was rejected, has now been welcomed by the Father? Her story is your story and my story. We have been welcomed by the Father. Jesus has come looking for us. We were an outcast. We were separated from His holiness. We didn't deserve anything, and yet He came looking for us. And now, once we concentrate on what He has done and what we have received in Him, we will want to declare it, and we will want to respond in spirit and truth worship. I don't know about you, but it's my experience. I don't lead music, but I'm a pastor, so I'm involved in worship planning and leadership. It is easy for me to lose the sense of wonder of what we've received. It's just easy. We can slide into a rut of just 
running through the motions of pulling off a meeting, just doing the same thing again, and lose our awe, lose our wonder. We forget how real Jesus is. We forget what He's really done for us. We forget that moment when she said, I perceive you're a prophet, when she's laid bare and she says, before the holy God of the universe, you see me as I am. You know my shame. You know the embarrassing details of my rebellion. You know my heartache. The prophet comes and reveals that to her. That is fresh to her, and yet he doesn't reject her. He brings her to the Father. See, we can lose the wonder of what he's done for us. We can forget who we are and who we were and who he is and how real he is. And when we forget that, we suffer a diminished awe. This woman has a lively awe because she knows who she is and she knows who he is and she is blown away that he has reached her and that she has received from him. Every now and then I have a moment where I'm just startled into the reality of how real God is and his presence among us. How the stuff we're singing about is real. The stuff we're preaching about is real. This last Easter Sunday... I was, I was at the end of the message, and I was trying to drive it home. I knew there was a lot of guests there, and uh, so I was trying to drive home the reality of it. The point I was trying to make was that because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, those who believe in him will be resurrected as well, 1 Corinthians 15. And so I was making this point in the sermon where I said, I, I don't know what your background is, I don't know your circumstances, but I do know this about you. You will die. It's a little more dramatic than that even. You will die. Now, it wasn't that very moment, but just a few moments. So it wasn't that, it wasn't like I pointed and what's about to happen, what I'm going to tell you happened. It wasn't like I pointed and it happened like that, like lightning from my finger. But it was just a moment later, a guy stands up and he's leaning over the row in front of him. I'm going, what is going on? You will die. And then the guy leaned up. There's a guy passes out and falls to the ground, apparently having a heart attack. He is having chest pain. He's having shooting pain down his arm. He's cold and clammy. People are moving chairs. People are gathering around him. I, I'm st- the sermon's still going on. So I come down. This guy is on the ground. I know him. He's a Christian man. And he's saying, Jesus, Jesus. I, I'm thinking he is seeing the Lord and he is, he is dying right now. And uh, so someone yells, call 911. And so someone calls 911 and we start praying and then we dismiss people. And so he can have privacy. The ambulance comes in, they take him. The story's very good. He goes to the hospital. He stays in the hospital for three days. They run tests on him for three days. They do not know what happened. I followed the ambulance. I got to the hospital. I was there with him. He said, oh man, I really didn't want to be the sermon illustration. <laughs> the guy who died when you said that. <laughs> I, whoa. How do you think everybody in the room was thinking about the shortness of life at that moment and the reality of God? It was a moment where everybody said, this is real. This isn't about let's sing a nice Easter song and we got a little egg hunt for everybody the kids afterwards. I'm fine with egg hunts. But it wasn't like, we got an Easter egg hunt and oh, I like your Easter hat and that's a cool outfit you've got there and what are you having for lunch? It was, you will die, you will face him and apart from Christ, you will be separated from him for eternity. But in Christ, you will experience the presence of God for eternity. It was that kind of a moment. And I stood back and I thought, how rare, I don't want that kind of experience in the service, but but how rare is it that I'm just struck to the core and everybody is, surely God is in this place. This stuff's real. This truth is real. See, we lose our sense of awe so easily. 
when we forget what we have received. As you prepare and plan for corporate worship, you should begin by thinking about your receiving and not your responding. As you prepare for corporate worship, you should begin by contemplating your receiving and not your responding. Before we get to considering a worship theme, before we get to selecting songs, before we get to thinking through arrangements, before we get to planning transitions, writing exhortations, selecting Scripture for Scripture readings, before we get to preparing to lead in prayer, before we get to writing a sermon, we should personally interact with the Father and contemplate what He has done for us. Listen, your primary identity is not leader, it's not singer, it's not musician, it's not tech guy, it's not pastor, it's receiver. Your primary identity is recipient of grace, overwhelmed by undeserved mercy, sought by God the Father himself. That is your identity. May we be receivers whose hearts overflow with worship because of what God the Father has done for us in Christ. I read, this, I read this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He's a 19th century British pastor. He, he gives a description of just coming to a reality of what God had done for it. Now it changed his life. I give this meditation as just an example. He says, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. One week night when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. How did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, I thought. But then I asked, how did I come to pray? I was indeed induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. But how did I come to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. That He was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. It's that kind of meditation on what he has done, and in that case, in Spurgeon's illustration, how he has applied it to me. It's that that brings about wonder. Concentrate on receiving, and you'll magnify grace, because this is all what he has done for us. Number two, and we'll close here. Concentrate on receiving, and you'll be positioned to respond with true worship. Concentrate on receiving, you'll be positioned to respond with true worship. You think about receiving, then that positions you like this woman to respond in spirit and truth. Our job is to receive and respond, not to create. We don't originate worship. We don't. As a worship leader, you are not called to be the worship creator, you're not called to be the worship designer, the worship innovator. 
the worship architect. What do you do? I'm the worship architect. (laughs) The worship producer. The worship entrepreneur. The worship engineer. The worship visionary. The worship pioneer. No, you are called to be a faithful receiver of biblical revelation and a faithful responder in spirit and truth. Because that is what the Father is seeking. He's not looking to us to create worship. He's looking for us to receive and respond. We don't originate worship, therefore we shouldn't seek to be original in worship. There are no bonus points for originality in worship. Dudes get killed in the Bible for originality in worship. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be creative in our expression musically. I'm not saying that we should not be creative. I'm just saying that we should not be original. I'm not advocating being stale. I'm not advocating being lifeless. But listen, freshness in worship is not driven by human creativity. Freshness in worship is driven by a divine revelation so that we see through the Scripture afresh who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we respond to what He has done for us. Freshness in worship comes from fresh glimpses of the person and work of Christ revealed through the Scripture. Not because you got awesome guitar tone. I'm thankful for guitar tone. That's not what's going to usher the creative expression, your your originality. It's what he has done for us. Listen, leading worship is a stewardship. Leading worship is a stewardship. A steward cares for something entrusted to him by an owner. If you're a worship leader, it's a stewardship. What does that mean? It's God's thing. It's not yours. It's God's thing. It's not the church's. It's ultimately His. It's it's about His activity, not ours. It's about people being deeply impressed with the seeker of souls, God the Father, with the Savior Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit. It's about people being impressed by God, not impressed by us. We aren't originating stuff. We are responding to what He has done. Consider what you've received and you will be positioned to respond with true worship. Listen, consider this. When we gather, this is how unoriginal we are. When we gather to seek him, it is only because he's already sought us. Ephesians 1.3 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. How far back can you go? Eternity past, he had already chose us. So when we come and seek him, he's been, he set his affections on us before the creation of the world. Before we ever pray a prayer in our gathering, Jesus is already interceding for us. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Before you pray a prayer, he's been interceding for you all day, all night. Before we gather and ever sing a note, he's already singing over us. Zephaniah 3, 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. He will exult over you with loud 
singing. Before we even sing, he's already been singing. We only sing because he is singing. We only pray because he's already interceding. We only seek because he's already sought us. Before we even extend a welcome, welcome to our church, before we even extend a welcome, we have already been welcomed in Christ. Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We're not originating things, we're responding to what we have received in him. True worshipers are receivers and responders. Receive and then respond. Grace requires that we receive before we respond and that we primarily identify ourselves as receivers. This elevates God and not us. It guards us from pride. What is it that Paul wrote to the proud Corinthians? He said, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? When we are faithful to receive, we will magnify grace and we will be positioned to worship in spirit and truth. And ultimately, we will encounter God. That's why we're here, is to encounter the living God. And we encounter him when we realize he has sought us, when we realize what he has done for us, and we respond in spirit and truth. That is why we were created I pray this truth will direct our hearts as we navigate the conference over the next couple of days. There will be plenty to respond to, but let's ensure that we are posturing ourselves to receive, to meditate, to contemplate, and to enjoy Him and His work. He is at work. He is at work. Let's receive what He is doing. Let's pray.